Good morning. If you would, take out your Bibles. Turn back to Philippians chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. You can find those on page 981 if you're looking in the Pew Bible there in front of you. 981. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Yes, we celebrated Easter last week, but today is Easter in the Eastern Orthodox Church, right? So the celebration continues. But as we said last week, in the New Testament, every Sunday, every Lord's Day is the day that we gather to celebrate the resurrection. So Easter candy year-round, Easter bonnets uh, year-round, all these wonderful things about Easter. But the good news is, the actual good news is, the fact that we celebrate this resurrection every Sunday does mean joy year-round. It's because of the resurrection that we can rejoice. And it's because of the resurrection that we can rejoice in all circumstances. So we've now spent the last six weeks introducing the book of Philippians. Now, starting in verse 6, we finally get done with the introduction, with verse 12, and we get now to the body of the letter. Remember, our big picture theme of the book is, is gospel-generated joy. Right, again, we've seen joy is not some sort of bubbly, effusive, positive experience of emotion. We're defining joy as the deep down settled conviction that all is well. And one of the main characteristics of this joy that we've seen is that this joy is a circumstance-independent joy. And we're really going to start to see that today. So last week, from verses 9 through 11, we looked at Paul's prayer for the Philippians because he loves them, he prays for them, he prays that their love would abound, that they would experience the love of God, a love rooted in knowledge that then overflows in a love for others that results in purity and righteousness that then glorifies God. So Paul wants them to know God, to love God, to love others, to grow in holiness, and to live lives that honor the Lord. And in the midst of all of that, we ask the question, what do you pray for? We saw that what you most pray for, to some degree, reveals what you most love. The content of your prayers reveals the content of your heart. Well, this morning, as we open, I want you to consider the question, what do you rejoice in? Honestly, like what brings you the most joy? Where do you find the most pleasure, and the most delight. Because again, like last week, where your joy is, there your heart will be also. What most delights you, most defines you. The focus of your joy reveals the focus of your heart. And Paul is about to tell us what he rejoices in, and embarrassingly, it's probably not something that most of us tend to rejoice in. Our goal always is to be like Christ. That's why God saves us, to shape us into the image of Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That means that we should want to rejoice in what Paul rejoices in. And this passage is going to tell us what that is. This section of the letter is like one of those update letters you get monthly from the missionaries that you support. The Philippians have heard distressing news about Paul's situation. Right? Paul has heard that they have heard, so he writes them this letter to encourage them. And actually, 
because Paul can't help it. When he's supposed to be writing about himself, he actually ends up writing really about the gospel. As you'll see there in the heading in the ESV of this section, this section is about the advance or the progress, the spread, the furtherance of the gospel. So I want us to look at this passage and see how the gospel advances. Our one big main idea, the main way that the gospel advances, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, is that the gospel of God advances through the people of God. He makes his appeal through us. He makes it through Paul and through the Philippians, through me and through you. That's what evangelism is all about. It is simply the act of speaking the good news about Jesus Christ. I read something this week. I was reading a book, the the one that I mentioned in the email. that said maybe this language that we use for sharing the gospel isn't the most helpful language. Because first of all, it's not found in Scripture. And second of all, we share something that other people want, right? I make my girls share because one kid wants the toy that the other kid wants. Uh, The people that we're sharing the gospel with, speaking the gospel with, don't necessarily want the gospel. So maybe our sharing language isn't very helpful. We are speaking the gospel. Christ we proclaim. Right? So I want us to see this morning the obvious but easily missed or ignored principle that the gospel only advances through people. It only advances through the church. It only advances through us. That's what church is for. There's a lot of confusion out there right now about what's the church for? Is it to clean up parks? Is it to be nice to people? Is it to do, what's it for? No, it's to glorify God by making disciples. And we make disciples, as we saw in Sunday school this morning, by teaching. And we do that by speaking the good news of Jesus. We have kind of taken our defining church mission statement from 1 Corinthians 1.23. We preach Christ crucified. Pretty simple. But this morning, I want all of us, both personally and in corporately, to be considering the question, do we? Do we preach Christ crucified? Do you preach Christ crucified? Right now, I am preaching. This is what we think of as preaching. Loud, mic, big, cool, pulpit. Right? This is preaching. I, and I do. I try to be very intentional every week, no matter the text to connect it specifically to the gospel and Jesus Christ. If I ever preach a sermon and I don't get to the gospel and I don't preach it, it's your job to find me after the sermon and say, you didn't preach the gospel, right? Because that needs to happen every single sermon. I don't want anyone to ever sit in a sermon in here and not hear the gospel. So every Sunday morning in this 45, 50, maybe 55 minute, uh, we are preaching Christ crucified. But... My fear is that I and that all of us will rest on that, will rest on this pulpit and believe that we have fulfilled our mission statement just by making sure that the gospel is preached in this place, in this hour. And listen, as centrally important as that is, I more than anyone believe in the importance of the word faithfully proclaimed on Sunday morning. Everything else trickles down and flows from that, but that itself is not enough. That itself is not a fulfillment of we preach Christ crucified. The gospel of God advances through the people of God. Main idea. 
Let's unpack three ways the gospel advances through the people of God. We're going to see that the gospel advances through suffering, it advances through example, and then it advances only through joy. Our focus, tell you ahead of time, we'll be on the first. We'll spend most of our time there, then example. And in closing, uh, we'll see how a desire to speak really grows and only grows through joy. That's the plan. Let's read the passage first. I will read it for you. You can follow along there in your copy of the scriptures, reading Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12, going to the end of the first half of verse 18. This is what God wants to say to you today. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. If you would, bow with me. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we want to preach Christ crucified. I want to right now preach Christ crucified. Father, we believe that you work through your word by your spirit. And so we ask now that he would come and he would speak and that he would work. Father, I pray that he would do the things that I cannot do as I stand here and and audibly proclaim uh, my words. Father, I pray that your spirit would be taking your word and applying it to our hearts and teaching and shaping and encouraging and challenging and transforming. Father, show us Christ. And we pray that through our seeing of Christ um, with these spirit-given eyes, that you would start to give us a great desire and passion for Christ and to truly proclaim him and all that we say and all that we do. Father, we are weak. I am embarrassingly weak uh, in this area. I should not be the one teaching a sermon on evangelism. Father, but your word is here. Your word is the authority. Your word is right and true. So, Father, I pray that you would speak and that you would work um, through it. Show us Christ, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 12. Paul, who is an excellent writer, gives us the main idea of this section in our first verse. It's the advance of the gospel. And so again, we're seeking to answer the question, how the gospel has advanced. What has advanced the gospel? And Paul tells us, he says that what has happened to him has advanced the gospel. Well, what has happened to him? Well, it's Acts, it's basically Acts 21 through 28. Acts 21 through 28 summarizes what has happened to Paul. We don't have time to run through the whole thing. Paul has just finished his third missionary journey. He has been taking up a collection to help the suffering saints in Jerusalem. But when he returns to Jerusalem, the religious leaders 
try to have Paul killed. He is arrested. They try to kill him again. So then he is sent in chains to the city of Caesarea, to the governor there. He languishes in prison there for two years. In the midst of his court proceedings, Paul appeals to Caesar, which means Paul is now on his way to Rome. He is shipwrecked on the way to Rome. He gets stuck on the island of Malta for three months. He gets bitten by a poisonous snake, but it's Paul, so he's fine. And then he finally makes it to Rome. And Acts ends with Paul in Rome, but in chains. But proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the what has happened to me. Imprisonment is what has happened to him. Just a couple of years before this, Paul has written Romans, the letter, to the church in Rome. And in chapter 1 of Romans, he talks about his desire to come to them. Well, he made it. But probably not as he had planned. Paul got where he wanted to go, but probably not in the way that he wanted to get there. The gospel does advance, but probably not always in the way we want it to. Because the first thing that we see is that the gospel advances through suffering. Paul has been mobbed. Paul has been beaten. Paul has now been imprisoned for years. He's been shipwrecked, a stranded on an island. And now he writes these very words in chains. And yet he writes all, he writes that all of that has only served to advance the gospel. And in all of that, at the end of verse 18, we see that he rejoices. Paul rejoices in the progress of the gospel, even if it means pain for Paul. For him, prison is progress. Why? How? Verse 12. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Is that verse 13? Yeah, verse 12. That's how it has advanced. What at first seems like an obstacle for the advance of the gospel is actually an opportunity for the advance of the gospel. Paul's plan was to go to Rome. He says in Romans 1.15, he was eager to preach the gospel to them, to the church in Rome. Side note, that's an important reminder. The gospel is not just for those who need to be saved. Paul's desire is to preach the gospel to those who have already been saved. Right? This gospel is not just how we get in. The gospel is the whole deal. It is the power of God for salvation and for sanctification and for everything. So Paul wanted to preach the gospel to the church, to the Christians in Rome. That would have been an easy thing for him to do, but I bet that it had never crossed his mind that what he would actually be doing is preaching the gospel to the praetorium in Rome. If you follow that little footnote six, you see the little six footnote down to the bottom of the page, you'll see that the imperial guard in the ESV is the translation of the Greek word praetorium. What is the praetorium? Well, the praetorian guard were the elite of the elite. These guys were the emperor's personal bodyguard. They sometimes served as the secret police, as assassins, as some sort of elite military unit. It would be like today if the secret service, those responsible for guarding the president, were made up only of Navy SEALs. The baddest of dudes with the most important of jobs, protecting the emperor. 
Which is somewhat ironic, because over the course of their history, these guys would be responsible for assassinating at least six emperors. These guys were, you didn't mess around. These guys killed Commodus. It wasn't Russell Moore in, in Gladiator. It was these guys are the ones who killed the emperor Commodus. These are the guys, these super soldiers, that Paul is chained to. So we've got to get their understanding of what he means when he says he's in prison. He's not just in some cell and they're like out there standing guard. No, he's actually under house arrest. He is in a home, but he is literally chained to a soldier at all times. No alone time. No privacy. Constant company with a pretty bad guy that would rotate every four or six hours. Again, talk about my own personal nightmare. Uh, Please give me solitary confinement, right? please, especially if I can have a stack of books. And I, I can't imagine anything that I would like less than being attached to a stranger at all times. A terrible inconvenience, but not for Paul. Why? Because though while, yes, he was chained to them, from Paul's perspective, they were chained to him. He was a captive with a captive audience. We've already referenced the end of Acts 28, where we leave Paul. He's welcoming all to come to him. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, with all boldness and without hindrance. Now consider that in light of the fact that all of that is happening while these elite Roman soldiers are chained to Paul. Talk about an opportunity for the gospel. Talk about an audience that apart from Paul's chains, he probably would have never had. These soldiers, in the sovereignty of God, were forced to sit and to listen to Paul preach the gospel constantly so that it was now known through the whole thousands of this guard that he is there suffering for Christ. Paul is in chains. He is very literally hindered, but the final words of Acts say that he is now proclaiming Christ without hindrance. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy 2, verse 9. There, Paul is writing from prison again. For the second time, Paul is in jail in Rome. He gets out after Philippians. He doesn't get out after 2 Timothy. This time, Paul will die, and Paul is pretty confident that he will die. But he still says... That though he is bound with chains as a criminal, the word of God is not bound. Suffering cannot stop the gospel. Suffering spreads the gospel. Uh, the gospel doesn't just advance in spite of suffering, but specifically in light of suffering. Suffering is one of the, if not the main, primary means through which God works to spread the gospel. Acts 8.4 is a great example of this. In Acts 7, Stephen has been stoned to death at the hands of Saul, who's about to become Paul, the very author of our letter, by the very grace of God. But as a result of that stoning, in 8.1, it says a great persecution arises against the church in Jerusalem. Persecution is bad. It's not fun. Persecution is suffering. But what happens? They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Again, doesn't sound very fun. They have to run, flee, leave their homes. But what happens as a result? Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the gospel. Suffering, the gospel spreads. 
Suffering specifically advances the gospel. Paul is in prison, and yet Paul still preaches. And now the gospel is once again going to a place that it hadn't before, going to a place that would have been impossible for free Paul to go. But specifically because of his chains, this whole guard hears the gospel. And whoever the all the rest there includes, this powerful gospel works to the point that whatever Paul means exactly, he is able to write later in the letter, in chapter 4, verse 22, that even the saints in Caesar's household send greetings to the Philippians. There are Christians in Caesar's household. There have to be Christians in the Praetorian Guard, and it's all because of Paul's suffering. In the absolute sovereignty of God, what looks like obstacles to us are actually opportunities. The great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield puts it like this. He says, in the infinite wisdom of the Lord of all the earth, each event falls with exact precision into its proper place in this unfolding of God's eternal plan. Each event, exact precision. That's God's sovereignty. And again, I know I talk a lot about the absolute sovereignty of God, but I continue to do so because you do not yet actually believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. I do not yet believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, or at least I don't live like I do. That was actually one of the, that was the last line I wrote on Tuesday evening around six o'clock. I don't live like I believe in the sovereignty of God. Stop, gotta go. Uh, we had family in town. This is their first time in the city. They wanted to go to the Mets game. I didn't want to go to the Mets game. Uh, I didn't want to. I'm lazy and I'm cheap. I went back and forth all day and finally decided to get over myself and buy the tickets so that we could spend time with family, plus the girls would just be ecstatic. So again, I'm patting myself on the back, all kinds of other serving goodness. Um, but then we tried to get our crazy crew of four little girls out the door. Um, the, literally, listen, the only time Melissa and I argue is when we're trying to get somewhere on time. I just don't understand why she's not able to get five people ready as quickly as I'm able to get one person ready. <laughs> don't get it. Um, it's a joke. Okay. So I've spent the money. Uh, we're going to be very late. I spent the money. We finally opened the door. It's a storm. <laughs> it was 75 and sunny all day. But here comes the storm. And more specifically, here comes the storm here. Again, I knew that I had just written the line about not believing in God's sovereignty over every specific single detail and timing of life. God would not let me forget that line. It kept cycling through my head with the rage that kept cycling through my head. Who am I frustrated with? Not my wife. Uh, not my kids, not the delayed trains, not the ridiculous people who can't seem to get people inside a Met game quickly. If you really trace it back, I am frustrated with God. I, this, I know this seems trivial and stupid, but in the moment, it wasn't. I was, I was angry, very angry. I'm an angry person. Uh, David Pallison has a great book about anger, and I think it's the second or the third chapter, and the, the, high, the heading is, do you really have a problem with anger? And it's a one-word chapter, and it says, yes. <laughs> Next chapter. Uh, you do, and I do as well. Listen, I know the truth of the sovereignty of God. But I do not often believe and delight in the truth of the sovereignty of God. It was, listen, it was embarrassing. It was, it was sinful 
Uh, we can sort of laugh and we can joke about it now. But I want to be very clear. It was sin. Uh, the wages of sin, which is death. So we finally get into the game. We're 30 minutes late. We missed the first two innings. We get to the seats. Of course, it starts to rain. Whatever. At least I'm going to get some good food. Sweet chick is there. We've never eaten at sweet chick. Get their chicken and waffles. Takes me forever to find it. The food is cold and terrible. Melissa wants Shake Shack. Crazy line. Of the six innings that we were at the game, I was trying to get food for four of those <laughs> innings. First line, four runs are scored. Shake Shack line, grand slam. Four more runs. I didn't see any of the eight runs. And standing there in line, it starts to rain again, and for whatever reason, the Lord broke through my hard and stony heart, and I was able to see the utter absurdity of the situation and of my sinful response, and by the grace of God, was able to apologize to my wife for being a jerk. All of that while preparing to stand here and talk to you about God's sovereignty over suffering, and to show you how Paul can even rejoice in the face of actual suffering. And let's be clear, I wasn't suffering. I was facing minor first world inconveniences. Right? And again, I tell you all that because I know that you are like me. I know it is so easy to sit here and nod along at Superman Paul and say, mm -hmm, yep, God's sovereign over suffering. But we don't actually believe it. Because when it comes, we go insane. You do what I did. You rage internally against the injustice of it all. And that is a rage that is directed against God. I don't care what the circumstances are and who you're mad at. If he is sovereign over all of it, you are mad at him. Our perspective on suffering and sovereignty is completely backwards. It's completely informed by the world and by the self and not by God and the scriptures. I had an opportunity to love my wife and to demonstrate trust in the sovereignty of God, even in frustrating circumstances, and I failed entirely. There was an obstacle, and I saw it only as an obstacle. I could only see the obstacle, not as an opportunity to trust and to rely on God and love others around me in light of my minor suffering. My situation, again, may not even been specifically about evangelism, but in a sense it was. My parents, listen, if you feel guilty about your evangelism sometimes, my, your kids, my four little girls, are my most important mission field. I'm evangelizing them every single day. My call to speak the gospel starts with them. And I, on Tuesday night, had a wonderful opportunity to talk to them about life about things not always going the way that we'd like, about the opportunity to honor God by trusting him in those situations because he's faithful and because he's worth it. All those obstacles could have been this wonderful opportunity, but I missed it. And thus I'm very thankful for, for grace. What about you? What is your current situation that feels like an obstacle? How could it possibly be leveraged as an actual opportunity? What do you feel chained to? Remind yourself that God has ordained those chains. How can you use them to advance the gospel? Maybe it's your work. Listen, maybe you have a legitimately miserable boss and a bad situation. Okay, listen, I'm not arguing with you, but God is sovereign. How can you use that to honor him and advance the gospel? Maybe things haven't turned out relationally as you had hoped, whether you're single or not single, but wish that maybe you were. Okay, God is sovereign. 
How can you use that to honor him and advance the gospel? Like Paul in prison, if scripture is correct, like Paul in prison, you are exactly where you are right now because it is the specific and sovereign will of God that you be right there right now. Why? And what can you do with it? How can, how can working to see your situation, not as an unfortunate accident, but as divine providence, change what you do and how you do it? One of the great truths of the Christian life that we've got to get, but that we so struggle to, is that we can trust God even when we don't understand. And that's what Paul is doing here. He has more reason than any of us to complain, and yet he rejoices. Why? Because he actually believes that the gospel is of first importance. He actually believes that Christ is better than his ease or his comfort or his, his pleasure. He actually believes that Christ's goals are more important than his goals. How about this? Listen, he actually believes that people go to hell apart from Christ. And so whatever it takes for him to get those people Christ, Paul's in. Imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. We have got to work on rejoicing in what God can do instead of complaining about what God did not do in wisely resting in his superior wisdom instead of foolishly asserting our superior wisdom. Suffering advances the gospel. How can you use yours? Where has God put you through your difficulty? Who has he brought into your path? How can you use those opportunities to advance his gospel? One more thing, real quick. Look again at the end of 13. It says there that Paul's imprisonment is for Christ. Listen, that's a fine translation. That's probably a good sense of, of what this means. But maybe it means more. Remember our grammar. Right? One of my secondary teaching goals is to convince you of the glory of grammar, especially the glory of gospel grammar. We introduced the idea at the very beginning of the letter when Paul writes to the saints in Christ Jesus, union with Christ. And so then Jeff came two weeks ago and unpacked for us in great detail, specifically what it means to be in Christ, right? this important but overlooked doctrine of union with Christ. And we saw that in Greek, the word translated in is in, E-N, in. It's a preposition. Prepositions link words together. They relate two words together. And so where you read there, for Christ, at the end of verse 13, in the Greek, it's our same little friend. It's the preposition in, E-N. Now, for is a possible translation of that word. But there's another way Paul could have said for. He could have said who bear um, Christ. He could have used a different word. He didn't say that. So this could also then say that his imprisonment is in Christ. Right? He is so one with Christ, even in his sufferings. He'll say elsewhere that we share in Christ's sufferings. But the good news is that we are in, as we are in Christ, that means that we are also with Christ. And more importantly, that Christ is with us. And if we can know and then do in light of that fact uh, that Christ is with us, it will change everything. The only person Paul is really chained to is Christ, right? And that's how it affects and influences everything that he does. 
So we may not always understand all the what, but we can know the who, and we know that he's good, and he's proven it on the cross. And the who makes the what fairly inconsequential. Paul can face anything in Christ and with Christ. The who can make the obstacle this amazing opportunity for for anything. And so while the point that suffering advances the gospel sounds like bad news for us, It's actually wonderful news for us, and even more importantly, for others. We share in Christ's sufferings, becoming more like him, knowing that he saves, knowing that he's with us, knowing that he redeems and restores. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That's good for us. But then others get to hear the good news of the Christ who came to save sinners. Suffering can actually advance the gospel. Look at the next point. This will be shorter. Second, we see here that the gospel advances through example. Paul is in prison. He's good with that because it's given him an opportunity that he would not have otherwise had. But that's not the only positive result of his chains. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So because of the example of Paul, specifically the example of Paul's suffering, the gospel is advancing. This is weird. Think about it. How does Paul's imprisonment make others more bold to speak? Why in the world would anyone want to imitate behavior that leads to arrest? Because Why does... Why does government punish criminals? Well, in part, it is to deter others from following their example. If I, being alive, see that the government puts someone to death for committing to murder, I don't want to be put to death, so I, by their example, am discouraged from doing what they did and committing murder, right? Their consequences deter me, their consequences motivate me not to do what they did. That makes sense. But here we see the exact opposite. Paul's consequences motivate them specifically to do what he did. Why? Well, the text doesn't specifically tell us, but I don't think it's that difficult to figure out. One of the things, when we talk about God, when we talk about what he is like, we talk about his his attributes, the attributes of God. There's two two categories of them. One of them we, we call his incommunicable attributes meaning he doesn't communicate, he does not share those things with us. There are things that he is and that we are not. And one of those most important attributes, though we never talk about it today, is that God is immutable. Immutable, I-M-M-U-T-A-B-L-E. I'd love to run down a rabbit trail and spend a lot of time on why that is so important, but we can't. But when we say that God is immutable, we mean simply that he does not change at all in any way. How, how could he? Because he's God. If he changed for the better, that would mean he previously wasn't God, and now he has improved. If he changed for the worse, that means maybe he was, but now he's not anymore because he's less than that. No, he's perfect. He cannot change. And so since this is an incommunicable attribute of God, that means that we are not like God in this way, which means that we very much are mutable. We are changeable. We change. And one of the main ways that we change is through influence and example. This is how you are wired to work. This is why who you surround yourself with 
is so important. Listen, parents, this is why I will decide who my children spend time with. That's my job. And I will reserve the right to not let my children spend time with kids who will be a bad influence on my kids. The very first psalm of the whole book is all about influence. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Parents, are you letting your children be surrounded and influenced primarily by the wicked and by sinners and by scoffers? The worst thing that ever happened to me, late elementary school and middle school and high school, and I thought I was cool because all my friends were non-Christians. I became a lot like them. They did not become like me. It went, the influence went this way. Parents, do you take seriously 1 Corinthians 15.33, that bad company ruins good morals? Parents, if your children are bad company, do not be offended if I do not let my children spend time with your children. Because influence is inevitable. This is how we're wired. We were made to be influenced. So be very careful who is influencing you. This is why the social media thing is so big. This is why I talk about it so much. You were created to be influenced. If you are taking eight hours in of social media of influence from what Psalm 1 calls sinners, scoffers, uh, the wicked, that's going to be influencing you. Influence is important. And these people are encouraged and influenced and emboldened by the example of Paul, in part because simply that's how we work. So simply by observing Paul, by seeing his great response to his great suffering, they are inevitably going to be influenced by that. Seeing that he can do it encourages them that they can do it. Seeing that the worst thing that, can, that they could probably imagine, arrest and imprisonment, maybe even death, maybe it's not actually all that bad, maybe it can actually be good as it advances the gospel, well, then the fear begins to fade. The joy begins to spread. They start to see that someone else actually believes that there are bigger things going on and greater realities. And so they start to see it and it spreads. Guys, joy is infectious. Joy is contagious. It's like a yawn. Not even fake yawn. Oh, all right. I, some of you are going to yawn right now because that's how it happens. Yawns spread. Do you know why that happens? No, I don't either. Scientists don't either. They can't figure it out. Google it. No one's entirely sure. But it has to have something to do with the fact that we are communal creatures. We are created for community. We are wired to be influenced by those around us. We tend to imitate those around us. We cannot help it because God created us to be relational. He created us to be defined by and dependent on others. So some part of that includes yawns being impossibly contagious, but it's the same thing with joy. I today, 12 years later, am a minorly less grumpy and miserable person simply because I have spent most of my last 12 years with my wife more than anyone else. And she's a joyful and hopeful person. And so she's slowly rubbing off on me. Influence. That's how it works. Think back last week to the difference we drew between true biblical love on one hand and romantic pop song love on the other. The latter is all self-focused. It's all about how you make me feel. It's all about what I want and what fulfills me. It's all about what I can get. But the former, biblical love, is other-focused. 
It's about putting ourselves, putting others before ourselves and seeking their good before our own. And you know why that works and fulfills us? Because that's how we were created. Because that's what our God is like. And we are created in his image. He is a self-giving and other-focused God. And so as we focus on others, like these brothers were with Paul, we begin to think less about ourselves and less about the cost to ourselves. And then we begin to think more about the benefit to others. Okay, maybe sharing the gospel with someone will cost me something. But the potential benefit to them far outweighs that cost. Because right now, the worst most of us will face is shame or mockery. About it. Uh, maybe some of you soon could risk the loss of a job. Maybe sometimes in the future, it could even be the risk of imprisonment or persecution. But even if it gets to that point, the point is that if our loss of something temporary for us results in the potential gain of something eternal for others, well, then we joyfully and gladly make that sacrifice. Paul's temporary loss is eternal gain for these guards. Again, and that's because Paul actually believes that there is a hell. He actually believes that everyone will suffer that hell eternally if they do not hear the gospel and believe the gospel. And so he actually believes that whatever it costs him to get those lost people, that gospel is worth it. And his example uh, to sacrifice everything so that others can gain everything, that encourages his brothers and his sisters to go and do likewise. It's not just crazy Paul, which is helpful because we may be tempted to look at Paul's rejoicing in chains and think, oh, you know, that's just Paul. He's Superman. That's, that's just, that's his thing. But no, and here we're seeing that it's not just him. Others are doing the exact same thing. This strange to us rejoicing in suffering is not unique to Paul. All these other brothers and sisters are doing the exact same thing that he did, and they're willing to suffer for it. Through his example, the gospel advances as others are more encouraged to speak. We've got the King James. I love verse 14 in the King James. In the King James, it says that others are waxing confident by my bonds. That's good. I want to start working waxing confident into my conversations. But more importantly, I want to be waxing confident. We don't use the word wax that way anymore. We still have the phrase wax and wane, right? We know that phrase. To wax just means to increase. It means to develop. It means to grow. I want to wax confident in my speaking of the word of the Lord. I want you to wax confident in your speaking of the word of the Lord. How do we do that is the question and the first answer is that we pray. And we pray like Paul. Make this a regular prayer for you. Please make this a regular prayer for me and for Woodside. Pray Ephesians 6, 19. Paul writes, Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. See, even Paul needs to pray for boldness. Paul, the super guy needs help and needs prayer, boldness. Start with prayer. Start with the example of others. And I'm going to put Peter on the spot. I've just been so encouraged lately by Peter's passion for evangelism, something that many of us lack. But guess what happens? It spreads. That's how it works. 
Right? Just seeing one other person care starts to make you care, starts to make me care more. Pray for more brothers and sisters with a passion to speak the word to those who need to hear it. It advances through example. Speak not only for the benefit of those you are speaking to, but for the benefit of your brothers and sisters who may then be motivated by your example. It advances through example. I'm just going to have to skip uh, the second part of this point. Uh, just notice real quick in verses 15 through 17. I look down there. We're just going to fly through it. Notice that not everyone has a positive response to the example of Paul. He says that some out of envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, and a desire to afflict Paul preach. Paul's response, verse 18, so what? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. I think it's pretty, that's pretty simple, what's going on there. There's one thing I want to clear up and make sure we get about that. One thing we have to be clear on is who these people are and what they are doing. Let's be very clear. These are not false teachers preaching a false gospel. Paul is very clear what he thinks about that. Over in chapter 3, verse 2, he calls those people dogs and evildoers. In Galatians 1, 6-9, he wishes that they would be accursed. In 5.12, he says that he wishes that they would cut themselves off. Paul had no patience with false teachers. He had no fear in calling them what they were. He knows that just saying the name Christ is not preaching Christ. You can tag the name Christ on anything and make it say whatever you want. It's the content that matters. Is it the actual Christ of Scripture? It's the identity of that Christ. It's who he is and what he has done that matters. So let's be clear. These verses have nothing to do with the Joel Osteens, the T.D. Jakes, the Creflo Dollars, the Benny Hens, the Joyce Myers, the Paula Whites, and on and on and on down the list I could go of the false teachers. Well, go listen to Shy Lin's song, False Teachers. It's wonderful. Paul would have had no problem naming and condemning because these people are not preaching the gospel. It's a different gospel. It's no gospel at all. Don't listen to them. If you are listening to them, if you are watching TBN, then you are supporting them and you are being influenced by false teachers. Right? The individuals in our passages cannot be false teachers. They're just jerks. <laughs> That's about all. So since Paul rejoices, they couldn't have been preaching a false gospel because Paul would have never rejoiced in that. The problem wasn't their message. It was their motive. They were preaching the right message for the wrong reasons. They wanted to one-up Paul. What happens, right, when, a, when the vacuum, right? There's a vacuum, now Paul's out. Everything rushes in to try to fill that space. Uh, Paul's out. Uh, Keller's gone. Maybe we can be the next redeemer. Maybe I can be the next giant New York pastor that has the big. Right, there's a vacuum, and so everyone rushes to fill it. Paul's gone. Now we can be the guy. But, uh, that's wrong. That's not good. But they're still preaching the gospel. And Paul doesn't care. Right? He cares very much when it's a false gospel. But when it's the gospel, as long as it's going forth, then he will truly rejoice. And that's our final point. I'll be brief. The gospel advances through joy. If you are like me, you hate sermons on evangelism because it feels like a 45-minute reminder of how much of a failure you are. Uh, I'm right there with you. Uh, which is why we need this last point. 
I can probably guilt you and manipulate you into begrudgingly sharing once or maybe for a little while, but that will never last. We could do classes on practical evangelism, looking at techniques and, and methodologies. We probably should. That wouldn't be a bad thing. But still, that by itself won't do what needs to be done. Only this will do what needs to be done. And it's only joy. Remember our theme for the book, Gospel Generated Joy. Well, the only evangelism that works and lasts is joy-generated evangelism. So then connect those two thoughts. The gospel generates joy. Joy generates evangelism, which means commutative property of addition. It's only the gospel that generates evangelism. The very thing that you are called to speak is the very thing that you need to move you to speak. Let's be clear. Listen, our problem is not first that we're afraid. Our problem is not first that we don't know how to do it. Our problem is first that we are not yet sufficiently captured by the beauty of the gospel and of the glory of Jesus Christ of whom that gospel is about. Worship produces willingness. Praise produces proclamation. So guys, we don't have a speaking problem. We have a worshiping problem which means that the first thing that we all need to do in growing in our confidence to speak is growing first in our confidence of the love of God and then in our love for him. You have to start with the gospel. You have to start with Jesus. Until you are truly convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and has done what he said he would do, you will continue to struggle to speak. But... Once you are caught, once you are captured by the beauty of the person and the work of Christ, once your love and affection for him begins to crowd out your love and affection for the world and the things of the world, the fear fades, the boldness begins to blossom, and the desire develops. It starts with the gospel. We don't yet speak because we don't yet truly love which means the first thing that we need to do is to commit ourselves to diving as deeply into the gospel as we can, which means that one of the best things that we can do to motivate our evangelism is to continue to study and proclaim God's word. My prayer is specifically looking ahead to Philippians chapter 2. I'm so excited about Philippians chapter 2 that that will be a wonderful help to us. Christ is compelling. Do you see it? Do you really understand and love the good news that you were or maybe still are a sinner separated from God? That that sin deserves eternal death and eternal hell and that guess what? There is nothing you can do about it. Truly bad news, which makes possible the truly good news. That, that though you could do nothing, Christ did something. You sinned and God sent. You ran from God and God ran after you in sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh, to become one of us, and in becoming one of us, to take on our sin and to take on the penalty for that sin and the suffering and death that we deserved. He takes the death that we deserved. He takes our place and then he rises again three days later, defeating the sin and the death so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be restored to God. And all of that is pure grace. It is all the free gift of God. We do nothing for it. Christ does everything. 
The gospel is that I deserved death and hell, but in Christ I received life and heaven. I deserved separation. I received reconciliation. I deserved condemnation. I received forgiveness. So no guilt in life, no fear in death. Everything forgiven. I had a stupid Mets game Tuesday night. All that paid for by Christ 2,000 years earlier. It is finished. And so, if by the grace of God, you can see that and rest in that and delight in that, then the speaking will come. But it has to start there. Do you truly find joy in Jesus? If not, the answer is not to beat yourself up about your evangelistic struggles. The answer is to seek him and to call out to him and to run to him, see him and savor him, and then speak him. That's the only way that it will happen. The gospel of God advances through the people of God. That's it. That's this, this is our calling. This is our responsibility as the church. This is our mission. It advances through suffering, it advances through example, and it advances through and as a result of joy in the Lord. And as that goes forth, no matter how it goes forth, Paul rejoices. Do we rejoice in the same thing that Paul rejoices in? Do you know this Jesus of great joy? Do you love him? Do you know him? Let's pray that we would, and that as we do, that we would then speak. Bow with me and let's, let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for your word. I am so thankful that the authority and the power is contained in it and, and not in me. So, Father, we ask now that your word would do its work. We ask for your spirit to come and apply these truths. Father, every single one of us in this room probably feels some significant level of guilt when it comes to our failure in this area. Father, help us to see first the great provision that you have given to us in Christ who comes and deals with all of our sin, including our sin of, of fear and of shame and reticence to, to love and to speak uh, to others. Father, I pray that you would move and motivate us uh, to speak, but I pray that you would do that by moving and motivating us uh, with a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, capture us with his beauty. Uh, Father, we're so distracted by so many other things. We can't even sit still and look at your word for five minutes. Father, help us to be still. Help us to look. Help us to listen. Father, show us Jesus Christ. Uh, I can't make that happen in me or in my kids, my family, or in my church. Father, we need you to do this work in us. Show us that he is better than everything else. And convince us of the reality of sin and of death and of hell, but in the wonderful news that Jesus Christ has come to solve those problems. Father, we need your help. Father, help us to delight in Jesus. And we ask and we pray this in his name. Amen.